If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open to John chapter 3 this morning. In uh, 1912, I wasn't alive, but in 1912, at 11.40 at night, the largest passenger steamship that existed at that time had left and was sailing from England to New York City. At 11.40 that night, they struck an iceberg. And you and I know the story made popular in these last few years because of the movie and because of the discovery of, of the sunken ship. But at 2.20 in the morning, that ship went down. It sank and it has rested on the bottom of the ocean all of these years uh, and was just discovered in just the last few years. There were over 2,000 passengers on that ship that night and 1,500 of them passed away. If you're familiar with the story, you remember the scene where the, uh, the lookouts are up top watching for icebergs. They had received warnings that there was ice in the area and they had detoured further south to try to avoid icebergs. Yet they were steaming full speed ahead because they wanted to make record time because after all, the Titanic was the unsinkable ship. And as those two lookouts were up there, they saw the iceberg. But by the time they relayed the message, it was too late. And they tried to turn the ship, and it looked like they were going to miss it. But instead, they hit that, that iceberg all along its side, punching numerous holes that eventually led to its going down and the loss of over 1,500 lives that night. The reason I share with you that story this morning is because what those guys in, in that ship looking out for, what they could see of that iceberg was only, pardon the pun, the tip. There was much more below the surface. And as I've pastored uh, for a number of years, been in staff roles and, and, um, um, and pastoring for almost two decades now, what I see repeatedly in the church is that we get part of what God has done in the work of redemption, but there's a whole lot of people that have never seen the grandeur of what's below the surface. And what we need is we need to see more than the tip. What we need in our churches is for people to see the grace of God in the work of redemption. We've been walking through Mark together and we've, we've seen Jesus with these disciples be very intentional as He's shown them miracle after miracle. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's fed thousands at a time. He's done all sorts of things. And all of it was to bring them to the point we were at last time together when Peter confessed, you are the Christ. All of it was to bring them to that point where the light went on and they professed Him as their Lord. And so it's at that point that we take a break 
to dive as deeply as we possibly can into the work of redemption. And I will admit to you at the beginning that I am not adequate for this task. You are not adequate for this task. Because the work of redemption is the work of a God who is immeasurable in grace. And to say that we are going to dive to the depths and see all of what God has done in redemption in nine weeks is laughable. But I pray that you and I would get a much bigger picture of what God has done for those of us who he has saved. Let's look at this text together. John chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll go John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take this passage in Scripture, and God, that you would bring it to life. God, that in the minds and the hearts, the souls of those who sit in this room, God, that you would breathe new life today. Speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. Regeneration is the first place that we want to start today. Now, regeneration is a word that is a very big word. It's one of those words that I learned in seminary. It's one of those that I paid for when I went to seminary. It simply means to be born again. Regeneration is the word that I want us to camp on because I want you to get it. I don't want you to, to, uh, to pack this thing away in the, in the simple language of something that you've heard before. I want it to seem new to you because for many of you it may be new. Regeneration is this. Regeneration is the, the secret and mysterious act of God whereby He makes us spiritually alive. Let me say it again. Regeneration is the secret and mysterious act of God whereby he makes us spiritually alive. Now, what this means is, if that statement is true, it implies at least three things. And I want us to walk through these implications, and I want you to see the glory of God in the work of regeneration. Number one, if regeneration is the secret act of God whereby he makes us spiritually alive, then number one... Prior to regeneration, we are dead. We're dead. And not like, 
not like uh, when I was a kid and, and, uh, and I would do something I wasn't supposed to do and, uh, and come in after curfew and say, oh, I'm dead. I'm just, I'm so dead. You know, I'm just, uh, I, they're going to kill me. No, what we mean here is that literally in every way toward God, we are dead. We see it in this text. The, the verse 1 of this text says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man doesn't look very dead. He looks very much alive. I mean, after all, he is a Pharisee. Not only is he a Pharisee, but he's a ruler of the Jews. This is a guy who is, who is really pursuing this thing with all that he's got. He's not sitting around. There's no grass growing under his feet. He is going after it with all that he has. So he doesn't look very dead. There's a lot of activity going on in his life. But then we see him further described, and the Bible continues and says that this man who is very active, very much respected, very much a leader of the day in religious circles, comes to Jesus by night. Well, in the book of John, anywhere that you see night, most, most places, I think there's one that's not, but most places in John where night is used, it is symbolic of evil. And the very fact that Nicodemus, this ruling uh, member of the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus by night means that it gives us a picture here that he is not as alive as we may think he is. It's what John goes on to tell us in John 3 verse 19 when he says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their works were evil. Nicodemus comes and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, he calls him Rabbi, it's a term of respect, particularly for Jesus because they knew that Jesus had had no formal rabbinical training. So when he comes and he calls him Rabbi, this is a huge term of respect. He comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What Nicodemus reveals to us there is that this man who is supposed to have it all together may not have it as together as he appears on the outside. John again says uh, prior to this in chapter 1 verse 11, he says, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. If anybody should have understood who Jesus was by looking backwards into the writings of the Old Testament, it should have been Nicodemus. But Scripture had already prophesied that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So this man who looks like he's very much alive, who's got a lot of activity going and, and has looks like he has everything together, we have some clues here. Him coming by night, not understanding who Jesus really is, we have some clues that maybe he's not as together as he appears to be. Well, Jesus gives us the answer. Jesus, in verse 3, says, um, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus here points out to him the reason that you can't see is because you need to be born again. We have this definitive statement here. He's saying to Nicodemus, the reason you can't understand these things is that, Nicodemus, you've not even been born to them yet. This would have flew all in the face of 
the Jew of the day. What do you mean I've not been born to the things of God? What do you mean that I have to be born again? I am Hebrew. I am a ruling member of the Sanhedrin. What, what do you mean? And so he begins to question. Jesus is telling him, you're not alive. You are dead. Scripture teaches this. Scripture teaches us that, that just like Nicodemus, that all of us outside of Christ are also dead. That it has nothing to do with being Jew or Gentile, but that because we are descendants of Adam, that you and I are also dead. In Genesis 3, you remember the account. The serpent comes into the garden. The serpent is more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field. And he comes to Eve and he says, Eve, has God said that you can't eat of any of these trees? And Eve begins to talk to the serpent and she says, no. What God said was that we could eat from all of them except for this one, the one that's in the midst of the garden, and we're not even to touch it or we'll die. And the serpent, who is Satan himself, speaks back and says, you won't die. I mean, you're not really going to die because God knows that when you take of this fruit and eat, that your eyes will be opened, that you will become like him, that you will know good from evil. And Scripture says that when she saw that the food was, that the apple, the fruit, not the apple, the fruit, was good for food, and that it was desirable to make her wise, she took it and she ate. And she gave it to her husband also, and he ate. And then you know the rest of the story. They realized immediately that they were naked. They had not known that before. They had been that way all along, but... They realized they were naked. And all the kids in the room are giggling right now. They began to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. They hid themselves from God and God comes into the garden. He's looking for them, not because he doesn't know where they are, but because he knows now that they are hiding from him and he's calling them out. He says this, he said, who told you that you were naked? The story goes on and he, he hands out the punishment for the sin that they had committed. And the last thing that happens there in that encounter in Genesis 3 is they are expelled from, from the garden. This was the place where they had walked in unlimited fellowship with God. And God says they can't be here anymore. And they are removed from fellowship with God. And God places an angel at the entrance to guard the way back. And it's in that moment that they died. No, you say, well, they didn't die. The, the devil was telling the truth. I mean, they, they didn't die right away. I mean, Adam lived to be 930 years old. He may not have died physically that day, but that day he died spiritually. His countenance. His position toward God was dead. The Bible says in Romans 5.12 that there is coming for you and I a day of physical death. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 it says sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And there's coming a day when you and I will die physically. Every one of us. But also there is 
coming, uh, or th- there's, a, there's a reality that's already here that happened that day in the garden. It's what Paul talks about when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, he's writing to believers, he says, You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the very, some of the best words in all of the Bible come in verse 4. But God. But God made you alive. And, and we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this thing that doesn't make any sense. You were dead following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, exercising great passion after the sinful lust of this world. How can a dead person exercise passion? Well, the teaching is that while we are not dead physically, we are dead in every way spiritually. And we, outside of Christ, our tendency will be to follow after the course of this world. Our tendency, we will be prone to wander. Not only that, but we will be... (laughs) It will be impossible for us To pursue God. We have been cut off. We are dead. The idea of a seeker sensitive church is ridiculous. Because there is none who seeks after God. Romans 3 tells us. Because we are dead. All of this being spiritually dead means that. We have absolutely no inclination toward God. We cannot and will not seek God. We cannot and will not respond to God on our own. We cannot and will not please God. The Bible tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. And there are some that would love for me to stand in this place every week and give sad emotional stories mixed with side-splitting humor and work you into a frenzy and then draw the net and manipulate you into the kingdom of God. But the reality is, you're dead. And there is no amount of emotion that could manipulate you because spiritually, you are emotionless. I've never been to a funeral where the person in the casket waved goodbye. How many times have you seen a physically dead person at the breakfast table? You say, well, sometimes before coffee. I mean, it's, you know, it's questionable. But literally, how many times have you seen a physically dead person at the breakfast table? How many times have you seen a physically dead person driving up I-85? 
How many times have you seen a physically dead person shopping at the mall? Never. Why? Because dead people don't live. Now that may be the most important statement that I have here for you today. Dead people don't live. If physically dead people don't eat anymore or go to work anymore or shop for clothing anymore, it stands to reason that spiritually dead people won't come to God on their own either. We've got to understand this. The gospel is more than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Come to Him. The gospel includes Genesis 3 where we fell, where we died, where we are so opposed to God, we have rebelled in and of ourselves to the point where we are dead. And when Jesus says here to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What he's telling to Nicodemus is the reason you can't understand who I am is because, Nicodemus, you are dead to God. So the first thing that you must see out of the definition is that we are dead. If regeneration is the secret and mysterious act of God whereby He makes us spiritually alive, the implication, number one, is that we are dead. Number two, regeneration is God's work alone. Regeneration is God's work alone. Let me walk through verses 4 through 8 here. Nicodemus, in, in verse 4, says, uh, said to him, how, how can this be? How can a man be born when he's old? It's a natural question if you're thinking naturally. Jesus says to him, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, thinking with that spiritually dead mind, he can't think with that, so all he's got to think with is his physical, natural mind. And he says to Jesus, how can that be? I mean, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? He doesn't understand the question, but this is exactly the conclusion that he wants him to come to. You see, he speaks as if he had a lot to do with his first birth. How many of you decided to be born? Not one of us. There's not one of us here. There's not one of us here that said, you know, God, I think I'd like to be a person. And you know, God, I, I think I'd like to be born in the United States of America. You know, God, I think I'd like to be born into a uh, middle class family. God, I think I'd like to be white. God, I think I'd like to have a good sense of humor. God, I think I'd like to be very intelligent and very gifted. There's not any of us here that told God any of that. Nicodemus, in his question, when he says, how can this be? How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He speaks as if he had a lot to do with the first one. This is the conclusion that Jesus wants him to come to. 
Jesus wants him to understand that just as you had nothing to do with your first birth, you will have nothing to do with your second birth. This is hard teaching. Because we, particularly in the South, have taught that it's simply a matter of you deciding to come to God. You're not ready yet. You can live however you want to and get to your deathbed one day and then you'll say, you know what, God, now I'm ready. Call the preacher. The reality is it does not work that way because we are spiritually dead. And I had nothing to do with my first birth and I'll have nothing to do with my second. If you're born, you're just there. The birth of my first child, Makai didn't come out and say, Dad, it was a long time in there. What took you all so long? He was just there. At my second birth, I was just there. I was an eight-year-old kid. Hadn't done any drugs, hadn't drank any alcohol, hadn't had sex outside of marriage, wasn't even married. <laughs> eight years old, probably wasn't. I didn't do any of that bad stuff. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, watching pornography or any of that sort of thing that makes a great testimony. But I found myself born into the kingdom of God by the grace of God alone. It wasn't some long path that took me down a road that drove me to the place where I said, this thing stinks. I'm getting out of here. It was simply the grace of God that made me alive one day. And yours may be a testimony where you did have a long, hard, unspeakable road. And God may have worked through that as well. But it is God alone who will birth you into His kingdom. Unless one is... Scripture goes on, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This was Jesus' reply. Nicodemus, how can these things be? Jesus says to him, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, what in the world would this mean? There have been those throughout history who have said this is talking about baptism. But this is not so, because this would be implying that, that baptism makes us clean before God. If you go through that pool and you have not, you're not trusting in the total finished work of Christ alone, then all you're doing is getting wet. This is not talking about baptism. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of Nicodemus. Being a ruling member of the Sanhedrin, being a Pharisee, when Jesus said you must be born of water and the Spirit, it would have immediately taken him back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. And God is telling all that he will do for those coming back from Babylonian captivity. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, call, and be careful to obey my rules. Six times, 
Six times in those three verses, God says, I will. I will. I will, I will, I will, I will, God says. What Jesus here is doing with this Pharisee is saying, all of your works, all of your activity, all of it that has those around you fooled that you are really alive comes to nothing because you are dependent on me. We see the fulfillment of the sprinkling of water that would cleanse them in the cross of Christ. We see here the language talking about the new heart and the new spirit. The new heart and the new spirit is exactly what he needed. He was spiritually dead and he needed the spirit of God to be put within him. He needed new life. He needed a new heart, one that was not prone to wander, one that, that was not opposed to the things of God. He needed for the light to go on. In verse 8, it says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We can't manufacture new spiritual life in people. We, we can manufacture church members. And some would say, well, I don't know that that's really true. I mean, we've not had a whole lot join the church here. The reality is, if there's going to be anything lasting and eternal, for the kingdom of God, it will, because, it will be because He decides to do it through us. We can manufacture church members, but not true Christ followers. Only God can make a vile heart clean. Only God can take someone who is so utterly opposed to the things of God and who is running their hellbound race and change them from the inside, making them alive to the things of God so that they treasure Christ above everything. We cannot manufacture new spiritual life in people, nor can anyone choose when to accept Christ. Christians are born, not made. The wind of God's Spirit is free to blow wherever He wills. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is His work alone. I was reading, doing research for this, and I came across um, a book by John Piper, Finally Alive. And I was reminded in, in the introduction of that book, he recounts the way two men in history came to be born again. One was Augustine. Um, Augustine, uh, at the age of 16 years old, had left home. And he had grown up uh, being, being uh, in, in a Christian home with a Christian mother, but at 16 years old he left home. 
And for the next 16 years, he pursued a life of uh, uh, pornography and sex and, and um, prostitutes and all sorts of things. And he reached a point where all of it became bitter to him. And he looked around and he saw the people around him that seemed to so enjoy Christ, to be so fulfilled with Christ. And he kept thinking back to what he'd grown up with. And he was, he was in misery. He was in chains. He was in bondage to his sin. And the whole time, his mother had never stopped praying for him. And the Bible says, or the, the story goes, that one day... Um, he had gone into a garden, a particular garden that was near where he was. And he was so distraught that he sat down underneath a fig tree and he just began to weep. And as he's sitting there under the, the fig tree weeping, over the hedge behind him, he hears a child singing, take it and read, take it and read. Immediately, the tears were gone and he got up from that fig, tree, that fig tree and he ran back to his study. And he took the Bible and he opened it to the very first place that he came to. And it opened to Romans chapter 13. And in reading of Romans chapter 13, he was born again. The other person that John Piper gives us the story of is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is famous these days as being the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis, his experience of being born again was drastically different. He had gotten on a bus that morning to take a trip to the zoo. When he got on the bus that morning, he was spiritually dead. When he got off the bus that morning at the zoo, he was born again. He recounts the story and he says, I don't really know exactly all of what happened, but I know exactly when it happened. He said, I wasn't really thinking about things spiritual. I wasn't thinking about God. I wasn't seeking after God. But I just remember that being on that bus, everything, everything became clear to me and I had a new heart to pursue Christ. And those two stories couldn't be any more opposite than what they are. What they point to is the fact that regeneration is totally the work of God. We need to pray. We need to pray and ask God that in this place, when we gather together, that God would move among us with His Spirit and He would cause people to be born again. We need to be people who, those of us who have been born again, we need to be people that say, there is nothing in me that has done any of this. It is all the grace of God. And that's why we sing the songs that we do. We need to be people that continue to share the gospel. We continue to preach the gospel. There was a line in one of those songs that we sang that said, I will preach your gospel until my dying breath. And that's what we need to be about. We need to not stop telling people that... That all are sinners. The penalty of sin is death. But that Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for sin and death once and for all. And by faith in Him, you may be forgiven. When we preach that, when we preach that, we must guard against emotionalism. We must preach that and simply trust that God will save who He will. That God is the one who will cause them to be born again. 
And after you have been regenerated, three things. I told you three things, and I'm almost through. That we are dead. That it is totally the work of God. But number three, after regeneration, there will be signs of life. In, verses, uh, in verse 8, the, the last part of it, uh, or, or sort of there at the middle, he talks about the wind blowing wherever it's going to, and he says, you hear its sound. You hear its sound. And so it is with everyone who is born again. Regeneration is an instantaneous event. One minute we are spiritually dead, the next we are alive. And even so, it's not always easy to know exactly when it happens. For instance, in the case of a child growing up in a Christian home. Parents, that's, that's a hard thing to deal with. Your child comes asking questions and you don't know exactly where they are and is, is this the work of God in their life? Are they just hearing this and repeating this? Are they just wanting to go to heaven one day? What is all of this? It's, sometimes it's hard to see. It's not as clear as C.S. Lewis getting on a bus, getting off a bus. But the change will become evident over time. Sometimes the change is radical and noticed immediately. We've all encountered people that have been radically saved. But sometimes it just is progressive. What are these signs? Well, number one is faith. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Acts 16, 14, Lydia believed what Paul said only after the Lord opened her heart. You see, faith does not precede regeneration. Faith follows it. It's not as if the dead person exercises faith and then God makes him alive. God makes him alive. And then he is able to exercise faith in the one who has. Another one of these signs, not only faith, but patterns of behavior will change. In 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. If you know someone who claims to be born of God, who claims to be born again, who goes out and lives sinfully and thinks nothing of it, and the pattern of their life is no different now than before they claim the day happened, they are a liar. They are not born again. Number three, another sign of being truly born again is genuine love. Genuine love for people, particularly for brothers and sisters. First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. When you see someone who claims to be born again, but they hate one another, they hate their brother and sister, it is evidence that they have never been born again. And then Paul goes into the fruits of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God has been placed inside of you, when you've been made spiritually alive, Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the marks of someone who truly has been born again. What I want you to see, what I want you to walk away with today is that, no, I, I don't want you going out of here saying, hmm, well, you know, I don't, I don't think he is. You know, I'm, I'm not sure she really gets this thing because it's not about us getting this thing. I want you to walk out of here understanding that it is totally the work of God in redemption to make you alive. And that should make you worship Him all the more. It should make your worship of that God deeper and sweeter and longer and more consistent and coming up from within because you can't work it up yourself. For the one who has been forgiven... Today, in this place, there are people sitting among us who are spiritually alive and people who are spiritually dead. And it is not the time for Ethan to come and play softly on the keyboard. It is not the time for the lights to dim. It is not the time for the air conditioning to drop a couple of degrees so that you will get chills up your spine but I pray that it is the time that God so moves among us that God would place new life in the people sitting in these pews today let's pray together for Jesus we come to the end of this text and God we realize that You are great and glorious and grand. That there is nothing in us that we should boast about. That we boast only in you. We boast only in your grace. For we're not only weak, we are dead without you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would come and you would breathe life today. That there would be people today, God, who are born again. God, for those of us who are born again, God, I pray that we would sing in response as Ethan leads us. We would sing in response because of your great love. And God, that as we go out of this place, that we would continue singing. And God, that we would continue preaching. And we would preach the gospel. And God, that we would see people be born again at your disposal as we are faithful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.